Amen. <clears throat> Good morning. Oh, man, what a beautiful Sunday morning we've been blessed with today. Yeah. I was driving out west in western Texas yesterday, and it looks like spring out there. So uh, I know they're definitely loving that. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you grab those? Uh, I shouldn't say if you do. I hope you bring them every week. Um, that way you can verify exactly what we're doing here and what we're saying. Uh, but I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn them uh, where we left off last week in Romans chapter 8. I do want to just uh, make you all aware um, of what we have coming up with Frank Turek. Frank Turek is a national um, apologist. And apolog apologist doesn't mean apology. Uh, it means apologist is to give a defense for uh, your belief. And so he's doing this. It's called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And um, he actually debates all over the, the, all over the country and all over other parts of the world. Uh, he debates atheists. Uh, and uh, he ta he'll take questions from the audience, obviously. We hope to have, you know, over a thousand folks here, uh, college students, high school students, uh, individuals that really just don't believe there's a God or have lost faith in the fact that God exists. Maybe they're Gnostic, maybe whatever it is. So he'll be here to give his defense for the, the gospel, not only that, the resurrection of Christ, so on and so forth. But uh, it'll also be an open forum where the floor will be open and questions will be asked, and he'll give a defense for the Christian faith. And uh, you won't want to miss this. This will be a great opportunity for you to come. And also will help you address people in your own life that have questions about God, about his existence, about, about death, resurrection, all these different things. He'll address that. So I want to invite you to be a part of that. Also, thank you all uh, for the surprise of all the nice, kind words that you gave me last week in all those notes and uh, the generosity that you all displayed. Thank you all for that. Um, not that I was surprised, but I didn't have one negative bad word in there, so I just want to thank you. I thank those of you that didn't write those, that you just kept them to yourself, so I appreciate that. Uh, but anyway, just teasing, but thank you all so much. It was a great encouragement to hear from all of you. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're here in chapter 8. Let's open up in prayer, and uh, let's join together as we allow God to teach us from His Word through His Holy Spirit, and uh, as He's always faithful to do. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we are so grateful, God, for your love for each and every one of us. Lord, this gospel is your story. And uh, Lord, it uh, has invited us to be a part of this redemptive plan of salvation that you have, have provided for all, all who will put their faith and trust in you, Jesus. Uh, we thank you, God, for this gift of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've set out to do to redeem mankind, a fallen world, back to yourself. I thank you, Lord God, that you're coming again, that Jesus, you're coming again, and Lord, you will redeem not only creation, but you'll redeem our fallen bodies that have passed and died and will be resurrected one day to a glorious new body, but Lord, thank you now that you're redeeming our souls, and uh, Lord, you're, you're, you've adopted us into your family. All these incredible truths, we give you thanks and praise, and we honor you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight's, uh, not tonight, this morning's message uh, is entitled, Secure in Christ. And you know, for the last, oh, quite a, quite a while here, we've talked about what it means for every Christian to be in Christ. And I think this is, this is an incredible truth that Paul has shared with us, and he has spent a great deal of time laying us a foundation in the first uh, seven chapters here of this whole plan of salvation um, what is the gospel? And Paul has been laying it out for us verse by verse, chapter by chapter. 
and wrote this to the, uh, the, the Christians in Rome that he had never been to or never met, but one day would make his way to Rome in chains and ultimately would die there. Uh, but the Apostle Paul here is giving us um, this incredible truth. And as you come to chapter 8, you're going to find that chapter 8 probably is the, the pinnacle in the entire gospel. Uh, it is probably the funnest chapter in the Bible for me to teach and uh, to share with you because as we're making our way through chapter 8, we are building now to really the highest point as we come to the end of chapter 8 uh, where we learn that there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. And Paul wants for us as Christians uh, and those in, at Rome and obviously us today to know what it means to be secure in Christ. Uh, security is a wonderful thing, is it not? It's a great thing. Now, if you've ever hauled livestock, cattle, um, anything like that, and you've ever had a bad experience of uh, a, a latch failing on a trailer, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, several years ago, we had been working some cattle on a ranch in Oklahoma and had been weaning calves and uh, just sorting cows and all those different things, the dries and everything you normally do. And we had finished for the day, and we had loaded our trailers up. We had several trailers and trucks, and we had calves in them and the, the drives that were going to go to the sale. And then we had horses and all that stuff loaded up, and we were headed back to the ranch headquarters. I was about the third truck back or so. I don't remember what number I was, but as we're driving down the road going back to the headquarters, ahead of me I saw something weird happening. The back gate on the, the aluminum trailer had swung open, and all of a sudden these black items were flipping out all over the road. And uh, obviously the, the gate latch uh, either wasn't secured properly or something had failed and the calves themselves were, were jumping out and, and uh, going off into the timber. And so I radioed to the guy ahead of me and said, hey, you need to pull over. we got a major problem here. Probably not that calm, but I said it nonetheless. And we unloaded our horses, gathered them up in another set of pins and then hauled them home. Some of them had some wounds, but nothing fatal happened that day. So for me, when I, anytime that I haul something, um, even though I know we have manufacturing uh, that does a great job when it comes to our latches on our trailers, I will always have it tied with something. A tie rope, if I don't have that, bailing wire will work. If it's not that, a horse lead rope will work or a dog collar. Any of those things will work, and I'm always going to tie the back gate regardless because I just want to make sure that it's secure. I want to make sure it's secure. And really what we're going to learn today is this. For every single Christian, you can be absolutely secure in Christ. You need to understand this. And if you will, the Holy Spirit has secured the back door of your salvation. There are those that believe that you can lose your salvation, that you can at a point in time, if you will, uh, the latch could fail, whether you or whatever, it failed and you're, you're out the back. Um, and I used to believe that growing up. It's kind of some of the theology that I was taught because I, uh, I wasn't reading the Bible and learning uh, like I should have been at a younger age. Um, and didn't have the understanding of studying the Word of God to know now why it's so critical that we understand how we can be a secured person in our salvation. This is not in myself, nonetheless. This security is in Christ. It's what it means for every believer to be in Christ. And that's why Paul has, has spent so much time laying this foundation for every single believer. And I know that if you're watching, listening, or you're here this morning, some of you would say, well, John, I don't really have what I would call secure uh, feeling of my salvation. I do believe that at some point in time I could lose this. Well, I want to encourage you today. I'd like to ask you one important question. What did you do to gain your salvation? 
The truth is, some will say, well, John, faith is a necessity of salvation because without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you don't have faith to believe in the Son of God, you can't be saved. And I say, well, you're absolutely truth. That's absolutely true. But where did that faith come from for you to believe? Did you muster that up in yourself? Did you read a neat article? Uh, did you look at creation? What was it? What made you have faith to believe in this incredible story of the gospel of Jesus Christ? My Bible tells me that the faith that I had to believe came from something. It came from God. That's where my faith came from. So even in the element of God using my faith to believe in the Son of God and the finished work of Calvary, nonetheless, that faith came from God. So it's a complete work of God, your salvation is. And so for us this morning, Paul is going to finish what we started last week, and I hope this will encourage you. Listen, if you've come here this morning and you're a little down, if you're a little out, uh, if uh, you're just off your feed this morning, you're going to have a hopefully a, what's a good word, a big appetite uh, when you leave and a smile on your face and a spring in your step, not because of anything that you've done, but because of this incredible gospel that Christ has given to each and every one of us who believe. Uh, it, this will change your life. If you understand Romans chapter 8, listen to me. These momentary troubles and hardships that you have called life are nothing in comparison to the glory of what's coming in the future and what we already have in Christ. So this will help each and every one of you uh, as we live life here. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 17, verse 12, start along. Start here with me and follow along. Paul says, therefore, and we talked about last week what the therefore was, but let's move along. Therefore, brothers and sisters... We have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh or the sin nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit, who re who re who the spirit you receive does not make you a slave again so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, that is the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God or the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own desire or choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that... The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage and decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. That's coming. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Paul says, who hopes for what they already have? 
But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now that is an awesome passage of Scripture to to uh, unfold and to unwrap this morning, especially as we talk about what it is for Christians to be secure in their salvation. My question to you this morning, if you are in Christ Jesus, do you feel secure? And the truth is, whether you feel you're secure or not really is irrelevant to the fact that you are secure. But it is great to feel and know that you are secure because it brings about things in our life, no doubt. So this morning, let's look at seven provisions that the Holy Spirit has provided every single person in Christ in their security in salvation. There's seven things that we can take from this section of scripture that will hopefully be a blessing to you. I'm just going to give you seven real quick. Number one, the Holy Spirit does these seven things and more, but this is what Paul shares. He marks us. The Holy Spirit marks us. He proves us. He connects us. He testifies for us and with us. He guarantees. He supplies and he intercedes. Now, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Bible gives the pronoun he, him. Uh, the person of the Holy Spirit is, is, is one of the three uh, persons of the one Godhead. The Holy Spirit is, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised his disciples that when he would leave, and he was leaving, he was going to send them the promised Holy Spirit, and they would, that they would only not only have the experience of the Holy Spirit being with them, but now, one day, and very soon, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was going to be inside them. He was going to indwell them. And from that day forward, when someone came to faith in Christ, as we learned last week, they were indwelt by the very Spirit of God. Now quickly, Paul is answering two statements he made in chapter 7. This is why it's critical that we have our Bibles. Um, if you were to just take an excerpt from the uh, Western Horseman, maybe something from Baxter Black or something else, and you just flipped it open and read one sentence out of there, you could probably make that sentence to say a lot of things that Baxter Black or the original author didn't intend for it to say. Would you not say that's true? Absolutely you can. And what often happens in Scripture is somebody just grabs their Bible, flips open the Bible, and wham, there's a verse. They read the verse, and then they do something with that verse. They actually make that verse say what they think they want it to say instead of saying what the author intended for it to say. And we have a lot of that that happens today. And so there's a misuse of Scripture. So I always encourage you when you read the Word of God is to read, if you're going to read Romans and study Romans chapter 8, before you do that, read Romans and once you read Romans, read Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, then read Romans chapter 8. And then go, go ahead and go on to chapter 9 from there, and then chapter 10 and keep making your way through. The reason is because you're not going to understand chapter 8 very well, or chapter, my Bible's falling apart, or chapter 7 very well if, if you don't know what he says in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. It's very important. If we're going to study Ephesians, you'll have to grab this one, so I'll have to set this one over here. It's falling apart on me. So anyway, 
So what we're going to do this morning, we have to remind ourselves here, guys, as we are studying this, as we're, as we're learning together, Paul makes two statements in Romans chapter 7 that are going to help us understand Romans 7 and Romans 8. Because Romans 7 has been so disputed over history that Paul is speaking here of a Christian uh, that is basically carnal in everything they're doing. And it's not true here. We're not wrestling this way. Um, what Paul is identifying in chapter 7 is the statement he made in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. And that's what Paul is referring to. And in verse 5, if you remember, Paul makes this statement. It's important that we understand this. <clears throat> in verse 5 of chapter 7, for when we were controlled, were, he says, past tense, I was once controlled by my sin nature. That's what I was. And Paul's referring here to Jews living under the law. We know that, but we also know for us today that uh, we were once controlled by the sin nature. And he goes on and says, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now, the, the law showed how sinful, how sinner I was. That's what the law did. And it aroused those things. And it bore fruit to death. And then in chapter uh, in chapter 7, as he goes through there, he's going to speak about now what it was for a Jew living under the law, trying to abide by the law, but yet living, in, living a sin life because you can't abide by the law because you're sinning, right? We all do that. He says, basically, it brings death, and that's exactly what the law did. He was holy, righteous, and good, but men are sinful, and the law basically just showed man how sinful he was. He never attained to the righteousness of the law. It just showed him how unrighteous he really was. And that's why Paul says at the end of chapter 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, <laughs> who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And that was what it was like for Paul to live as a Jew, striving to keep the law, loving the law of God, but in and of himself a sinful man, unable to attain to the righteous requirements of the law. Then in verse 6 of chapter 7, But now, I love these words because they're important. Paul says that's what you were, but now something different. But now, he says, by dying to, the, to what once bound us and having been released, he says, from the law so that you serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. Paul says, but now something has changed. Something's happened. But now the Holy Spirit is introduced here. And the Holy Spirit now is what we're going to learn about in chapter 8 now, about life now living in the spirit of God. It's a totally different thing. And that's why Paul is building this thing to a climax as we come all the way now, if you will, to the end of chapter 8, when Paul is just going on and on and on. We'll get there next week. He's almost jumping up and down as he's writing this thing down. You can see the excitement in Paul as he's like, this is incredible, God, what you have done for each of us who are in Christ. And he says, and nothing in all creation can separate me from the law, love of God. Nothing. If God is for you, who can be against you? And he's building this thing up. And so here we are in chapter 8, and we're building our way to that very, very final point where Paul is just exploding with enthusiasm and excitement in his salvation. And he's sharing with us here seven things that the Holy Spirit does for every single believer that, that he's done for us, and he gives them to us right here. The first one is this, that he marks us. The Holy Spirit marks every single one of his own. People say, well, how in the world will God sort the sheep and the goats at the day of judgment? What about the wheat and the tares, the believing and the unbelieving, the evil and the righteous in Christ? How's God going to do that? Well, he's done, he does that because he knows who are his own. And one of the ways he knows his own is he's put the Spirit of God in them. That's who they are. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us to mark us. 
If you've got your own brand registered in the state of Texas um, and you have your brand and you brand your cattle, if you were to mix them on an open range, you know which ones are yours because you have marked your cattle. You know which ones they are. And we've been marked now with the Holy Spirit, which is an incredible truth. By the way, there's not, any, there's not two classes of Christians. I meet some people that think they're a lower class, class Christian and there's not two classes. There is only two types of people. Paul makes it clear as we look about being marked with the Holy Spirit. He says in verse nine of chapter seven or of chapter eight here as he makes his way now down to verse 12. He says, if you have the spirit of God living in you, you are a child of God. If you don't have the spirit of God living in you, you are not a child of God. There are those people out there that teach this. If you don't possess certain works, what they call of the Spirit, certain gifts of the Spirit, then just tough luck, brother. You don't have the Holy Spirit. That's not true. You either have the Spirit or you don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not in Christ. If you do have the Spirit, it don't matter. You have Christ and you are in Christ, period. There's not different classes of Christians. And those of you that have been taught that if you don't have certain works, if you will, of uh, the fruits of the Spirit as far as, let's just say, the gifts of the Spirit. Some people say, well, uh, the gifts of the Spirit are, are for those who have the Holy Spirit in them. Listen, that's a, that's a bunch of baloney. If you're a Christian and you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling you because he has marked you. He has marked you is what he's done. And you need to know that. So there's sometimes people say, well, brother, if you don't do what they did there in Acts, buddy, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Listen, that's a time for another story and another day. But the truth is, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're just not in Christ, okay? That's just the truth. So let's move on from there. So he marks us. And you say, well, that is an amazing thing to think that God has marked his own. It is absolutely amazing. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we talked about this last week. It says, and you also were included in Christ, Paul says, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and having believed, you were marked in him, in Christ, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit that guarantees your inheritance. The first thing is, is the Holy Spirit marks each and every one of us. He marks us and we have the Holy Spirit in us and it identifies us that we are his own. If you're a Christian today, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, seems to be feared because of the abuse of certain teachings about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does and what the Holy Spirit doesn't do. Listen, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is God. It's the Spirit of God, and it indwells every single believer. It's awesome. The second thing, he marks us. The second thing is he proves the Holy Spirit does something for you. He proves the authenticity of your adoption. This is very, very important. In, in the 15th verse here in chapter 8, it says, The Spirit you receive does not make you a slave, so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him, the Holy Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. He is giving credence to the authenticity of our adoption. Now, this is so incredible and so huge. The Jew would live in fear of God to a degree. 
The Jew never, ever, ever felt close to God. Never did. Never did. Keeping the law never made a Jew go, oh man, I have a relationship with God. Never did that. God was there. They were here. Never that relationship was there ever brought together because of the the law and the keeping of the law. It never, ever brought them close to God in their own heart. And so we know the law never did that. In fact, it did the very same thing. It, it made them a slave to fear. But the spirit now on the other half, on the other hand, the spirit proves our adoption as the children of God, which is an incredible thing. This is a legal, if you will, adoption. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing how God has done this. Listen to Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Grab your Bibles. We're going to go through here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God. The Holy Spirit was given to us to authenticate our adoption. It's the seal of our adoption, if you will. It is the legal signing of the adoption that it took place. And if you are in Christ this morning, you are adopted now into the family of God as a child of God. And this is a pretty incredible thing. It is basically legally made a son, properly You are a son. You've been adopted. That's what this is. In Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined, he predetermined, as we're going to learn next week, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. This adoption is an incredible thing. It was all done by the pleasure and the will of the father to his children. That's what he's done. So Paul's using a word here, uh, the word son. Some of you ladies might say, well, John, I don't like the word son. Um, I wish it said daughters. Your, 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 your late trans- translations are going to say daughters, sons and daughters. It's going it's to change this, and it should never have changed this word. Because what's going on in our modern day is they're trying to make everything fit everybody's mindset about about. Uh, about men and women and all that. They're trying to make everything that way. We don't want to offend anybody. Listen, they've changed this word and it's incredibly wrong that they did. The reason the word son is here is for a reason. This adoption is so critical that you understand why Paul says you were all adopted as sons of God. This is so important. You say, well, John, what are you talking about? Galatians chapter three in verse 26 to 28 says this, for you are all sons of God. Sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, it's all about being in Christ, listen, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. Because every person who is in Christ, you become a son of God. Everyone. You say, well, I don't know if I like that very well. Well, you will when you learn this. 
The reason the Apostle Paul uses the word son is because in, 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 in Roman writing and also in the Jewish culture, the son is the one that receives the inheritance from the father. He is the heir of the father's estate. He gets the ranch, he gets the cattle, he gets the key, he gets the money, he gets it all, lock, stock, and barrel. He is the rightful heir of the father's possession. You beautiful ladies, you would marry into another family where the son received the father's inheritance. And so that's why the word son's here, because the son is the one that received that. Listen to what this law was. <clears throat> this is how it is stated, the Roman principle of adoption. The Roman principle of adoption enabled a person to take, or the law of adoption, to take an, into his own family a child, not his own, with the intent of treating the child as his own, with all privileges and responsibilities of the new family. This is a very important law because the adopted child, do not miss this, the adopted child had all the rights of a legitimate Son, all the rights of a legitimate son. Who is the legitimate son of God? Jesus Christ. Paul is going to teach us something here that is so incredible about this gospel that you have been invited into in Christ. You, first of all, are going to receive all the rights of a legitimate son. Jesus is the only legitimate son of the Father, and he has been given all right all authority, all dominion, all rule, all power, all things to the son. You are a legitimate son. At the same time of receiving all the rights of a legitimate son, listen to this, this son absolutely lost all rights and responsibilities of his old and previous family. Now this is absolutely huge. He was treated like a new person. All of his old debts and obligations connected to the old family were abolished as if they never existed. This is a very difficult thing for Christians to grasp, is this concept of adoption. Anybody in here adopted? We have several, several, several of you that have been adopted. This has got to be one of the most difficult things for a child that has been adopted is to really in their heart of hearts, in their mind, to really grasp the fact that although they are not a blood-born child, that the parents don't have any more special love for their, for their, for their, uh, their blood children than they do for their adopted children. That their love is completely the same. That they receive absolutely all the same things that the other children get. That there's no level. This one over here was my blood son. You're adopted somehow. You're on a different plane or a different level. That is not the heart of adoption. The heart of adoption says this. Out of a great tremendous love for another individual who is not a part of my bloodline or my family. I extend to them the most incredible gift of making them an absolute equal child within my blood family. There is no difference. It doesn't matter who their family name was. Maybe their daddy gave them a bad name or their mama. Maybe they didn't know their daddy didn't know their mama. Maybe they came from all kinds of things across the tracks. That is all completely severed and cut off and no longer exists because you have been brought now into my family and you are my son. Amen. 
my son. And all the debt and all the things in the past, look at this spiritually. All of our sin, all of our past, all of the things we've done, all of the things that you had happen to you prior to coming to Christ, all of the crazy garbage you did, all of the sinful deeds you did, maybe the abuse you experienced, everything that identifies you as who you are. When you come to faith in Christ, that has all been crushed on the cross of Calvary. It no longer exists in your life. That's why people say, well, how can God not remember my sin? Because he chooses not to remember sin because it's all been covered and paid for by the son. It's all done away with. Your sin was already paid for on the cross of Calvary. Therefore, God no longer remembers sin because it was atoned for and paid for. And you are righteous in the eyes of God as a son of God. Do you understand this? This truth is incredible. It's all been paid for. It's done. You now are in Christ. God has no more love for his son than he does for you. In fact, he showed you the extent of his love that he took his own, his own son and crushed his son in order that his blood would purchase your redemption and your freedom. If you don't know that kind of love, you don't know the gospel. He took his own son and sacrificed him so he could purchase you. He bought you. He said, I want you. It's incredible. It's incredible. Moving on, it says this. By the right of the law stood as an heir to all the inheritance of the new father. An heir. It was carried out in the presence of seven witnesses to make it official. Seven witnesses officially. It's pretty amazing. The adopted son enjoyed the same privileges as a natural born son. According to the Roman law, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained the rights and legitimate son in his new family. He got a new father. He became the heir of his new father's estate. He was inalienably co-heir with the other sons in the family. In the law, the old life was completely wiped out. All debts were canceled, and he was absolutely the son of his new father. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit proves that you are a son or daughter. Listen to where you stand now. We've already learned in Romans here what Paul the Apostle says, for us who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 5. We've already learned this several weeks ago. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access. Who have we gained access to? The Father. Because we are in Christ, we have gained access to the Father. It's incredible. Then he moves on and says this, By faith into his grace in which we now stand. We stand in a position of access to God. Although we were not in the family of God, we have been adopted into the family. And because we're in Christ Jesus, because the Holy Spirit himself makes sure that he verifies that authentic adoption is real, I have access to God now as my Father, and by him we cry, Abba. That word Abba there is literally the word Daddy. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a term of endearment, a great term of endearment. And he says here that this was actually carried out in the presence of seven witnesses. Do you know what's incredible? I'm going to blow your mind that Paul put this in there, but he did, and the Holy Spirit placed it here for us. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 19, God said that when we, when we judge an individual among our people, 
that a single witness will not suffice against a person for a crime or any wrong in any connection with any offense that he has committed. One person's testimony will never make another person guilty. It required, guess what? It had to be established on two or three witnesses. Two or three. If you have two or three witnesses to the crime this so-and-so did, that holds the weight right there. One person cannot do this. What's very, very interesting to me is that the Holy Spirit himself testifies on our behalf that we belong to God. And then as you read through this chapter eight, you're gonna find something else, that God himself justified you. And then thirdly, guess where the sun is setting right now? The same place that I have access to. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And you know what Jesus is doing for you? The Bible says in Romans chapter eight, he's interceding for you on your behalf. You have the Holy Spirit interceding for you. He is going to the Father. He is speaking on your behalf. He is testifying that you are of the Father. You have God the Father that verifies that he justified you. He justified you. You have the Son who is seated in heaven and he is doing the very same thing. He is interceding for you as one of his own brothers in Christ Jesus. So not has this been established on the principle of one because Satan is the one who condemns and he can't do it. Why? Because it takes three witnesses. And there is three witnesses in this chapter. Guess who they are? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all give credence to the fact that you are in Christ Jesus. It has been validated by not one witness, not two witnesses, but Paul says it's been validated by all three witnesses, and that is the three persons of the Godhead. How can it get any more stout and firm than that? It's incredible. Absolutely incredible, unbelievable. Ooh, that's exciting. Man, that's amazing that God's done this for us. Oh, my word. In fact, now he says you can call God your father. A Jew never called God father. A Jew under the law never called God father. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word father is either spoken or alluded to only 15 times in the entire Old Testament. And in fact, when Jesus, the very Son of God, comes on the scene, the favorite definition of who God was is, guess what? Father. Father, Father, Father. 65 times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus Christ speaks about God being the Father. 65 times, only five times, 15 times in the Old Testament. And then John, in the book of John alone, the gospel of John, the apostle John, you know how many times it's used there? Over a hundred times the apostle John uses the term father in the gospel of John. It's incredible to think that we can call God father. Father, that's what he is. It's awesome to think about that. It's a term of endearment to call somebody dad. I've only got three people in this world that call me that. Sometimes they'd rather not, but most of the time. They don't call me father. You know what they call me? Dad. And I don't care what's going on. When my kid says dad, I listen. I listen. And no one else calls me dad. Only my kids. And Paul says this in this word. 
from going being an alienated individual, not even of the family of God. You have been legally adopted by the blood of Christ, purchased, bought, redeemed. The whole thing has been done for you and given to you. And you no longer look at God as some scary, fearful thing now. No, you've been adopted into his family. You have access to the very throne of God. You have Jesus interceding for you, the Holy Spirit interceding for you. God the Father justifies you. You have access to the Lord God himself through the Son, by the Spirit. He is your Father and he's your dad. And when his children need something, he's already there to provide. He's your dad. It's incredible. Say, John, is this real? Yeah, it's real. We don't live it like this. We don't believe it. It's real. We didn't get halfway through even. Are you starting to understand? Christian, just a little bit about what this gospel means for you. You are secure in Christ. You're secure in Christ. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the Father's love. My kids may do some bonehead things. Because I did. But you know what will never change? My love. Miles won't separate me. <laughs> Bonehead things won't separate my love. Nothing will separate my kids from my love. You need to hear this, Christian. Nothing in all creation will ever ever separate you from the love of God. If you've never addressed your father's dad, as a Christian, it's time. You have the roads been paved for you. He longs for that. He desires that in your life. It's incredible. He's tied the back gate shut. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, and God, we are just overwhelmed by this gospel. Lord, I know I can't make people understand. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. I know there's some people here today that just cannot believe that God has somehow just forgiven and forgotten all the garbage of their past. That he loved them so much that he even crushed his own son in order to make them a rightful son. That we are in Christ. We receive all the blessings of the son. We are a co-heir of God, a co-heir in Christ Jesus. We receive the inheritance from the Father just the same as the Son. God, I know there's people here this morning that they are just struggling to understand how you could love them. Lord, I'm there often. But God, you chose to. Lord, you know we're flesh and bone. You know that. 
You know, sometimes our best isn't so good. But God, your love for us will never change. Somebody needed to hear that today. I needed to hear that again every day. That, Lord, you don't run out of tie strings. You don't need another one. You've already done it. The gate is secure. It's, it's, it's already been tied. Because we are in Christ Jesus, we're in there. No gates to come open. No escape route. No, no, no slipping and sliding on my part. It's going to get me out the back gate. It's all been secured. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Help us to, to not just hear it. God, help us to know it. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Anybody needs to pray this morning, that room is always open, just the lodge where we drink coffee. Some of our spiritual leaders are in there, elders and lay pastors and others are in there to pray with you. If you want to pray, they're in there this morning. You go do that. The rest of you, if you came here with your lift poked out, I hope you've got your fist and chest poked out now. All right? Amen. Y'all have a great week.